Welcome to the Do Good Radio Hour with Bluegrass Community Foundation. We believe doing good inspires good. It's the gift that keeps on giving. The intention behind this show is to encourage you by sharing the undeniable good happening within our community. One of the ways we plan to do that is by sharing the stories of nonprofit organizations across the region who are creating more generous, vibrant, and engaged communities. Tune into the Do Good Radio Hour every Monday at 2 p.m. to hear about the good that is the heartbeat of our community and how you can get more involved. Welcome listeners, my name is Kayton and I am a part of the communications team here at BGCF. This time of year is super fun here at the foundation because it is Good Giving Challenge time. For those of you who are unfamiliar, this is a week-long online giving challenge for nonprofit organizations with various matching and prizing opportunities for your donors. This year is our 10th anniversary with a running nine-year total of $11.7 million given. So we are hoping to make this year the best year yet. Don't miss it. December 1st through December 7th. Welcome back to 93.9 WLXU. VGCF welcomes our next guest, Samantha Adams with Voices of Hope Lexington. Welcome, Samantha. Hello. Hello. We're excited to have you on the show today. But before we dive in to all the good stuff that your organization is doing, please tell me more about yourself and your involvement with Voices of Hope. Okay, um, I am a recovery coach, or I started as a recovery coach here at Voices of Hope in February. Um, I have taken over the roles of socials and events here and the volunteer coordination here at Voices of Hope. Um, I'm also a person in long-term recovery myself, so organizations like this are very important to me and I'm happy to be a part of it. The mission of a nonprofit organization is definitely the path that kind of guides you in your work. So what is your mission at Voices of Hope and how do you see that in your programming? I'm very interested in your programming, if you could go more into that too. Okay. To put it plain and simple, our mission here is to uh, help people stay in recovery. Um, If you say you're in recovery, you're in recovery and we support that. Um, We support that in many different ways. We offer telephone recovery support which is a weekly phone call from someone who has been there just to kind of check in with you and see how things are going in your recovery. Um, I know for myself, when I was in recovery, it was a lot easier to answer the phone than pick up the phone and call someone when something was going wrong. So those calls are super important to us. It's one of our most cherished programs. We also offer recovery coaching, which is a one-on-one session with a recovery coach, someone who's also been there, um, digs a little bit deeper into what we call recovery capital which examines all areas of our lives, spirituality, transportation, careers, social, and that is the other part that we do here at Voices of Hope. It's all about connecting you with other people in recovery. We have self-help meetings. We offer yoga. We offer Tai Chi, um, all for free, um, all of these things, different pathways of recovery from smart recovery to AA to um, young people in recovery. And then the socials and events is what's really important. We try to have um, something once a month, which we have a game night. We do special things for Super Bowls. Um, this week, this past week, we just did a scavenger hunt in downtown Lexington for That's Halloween, fun. which was super fun. Um, so just connecting people with social, um, getting those connections for other people in recovery. And then also we provide many resources. If you're having trouble with employment or you need food, um, transportation, Um, a month's rent paid in your new sober living because you just got out of rehab, things like that. So all about connecting to resources and other people in recovery. Every face you see at Voices of Hope is someone in recovery or someone whose life has been impacted by addiction. Is that right? Uh, Most of us have been in recovery. A A lot of the volunteers that we have that make the phone calls are mothers of someone that has, they've either unfortunately lost to the disease of addiction or, you know, their child is also in recovery. So we have different aspects. And I think it makes people feel more comfortable coming in to talk to you because they they know when they come in, the face that they see has been there. So we're not going to judge you no matter what. That's great. So let's talk about it. COVID-19 has hit every community hard, but I know specifically those affected by addiction have been the hardest hit due to the isolation. How has your organization had to respond to this? Um, it was, it's been a challenge um, for all of us in recovery. Uh, that social aspect and physically seeing those people is very important to us, especially 
when you're early on in recovery, making those connections. Uh, we adapted pretty quick, I think. Um, we were able to offer all the meetings that we have here at Voices via Zoom. Um, we still are offering them hybrid, so some people do come in person now, and we still do offer them online. Um, our TRS calls were still able to be made, thank you to technology and apps on our cell phones from home. So those people were still receiving their weekly phone calls that they had signed up to receive. And we were able to do recovery coaching um, also via telephone um, through the COVID. We were at home for about two months, um, but we were able to still provide all of our services online or over the phone. Um, and that included our yoga and Tai Chi. So it was pretty interesting, but it was a good response. The silver lining with all of this is that, you know, organizations like you all have had to be innovative and you've been able to expand how you can continue to reach out to people in new and innovative ways. And although obviously we're starting to meet back in person again, which is great, but you all have been able to find different ways to reach out. And so even though it was unfortunate, it has been fortunate in that way, I feel so. It has. And we've had time to also, since we can't have the people and people aren't constantly coming in, we've been able to do a lot more outreach also. So it's great. So on a better note, the Good Giving Challenge is here and we could not be more excited to welcome some light and positivity into the end of this year. So Voices of Hope is a participant, which is very exciting. So why should people give to your organization? Give me a pitch. Okay. Um, for me, I'll just kind of keep it personal. When I was first in recovery, I had the first time ever I had the support of my family and friends and, you know, people were helping me. But as, you know, I slipped and fell several times and had to go back and forth, I lost all of those connections. I lost the hope. I lost um, anyone to call. I didn't have any money. I had nothing. Um, so places like Voices of Hope, someone knows that they can come here if they're struggling. Um, we can help with assistance with sober living rents. Um, we have trainers. We do overdose response trainings all over town. So that funds the trainers and the Narcans to help keep people alive. Um, we also give uh, bags out to people new and sober livings with hygiene. You know, they're coming out of rehab or jail or even off the street and they don't even have those items. So I know for me, when I came out of rehab the last time, and a bag was given to me with notebooks and pens and hygiene items, it just felt good. Number one, you don't have to go and ask the people that you're in your new sober living home that you don't know to borrow something that they all have, but we're able to provide that for them um, as well as the social. We can immediately connect them with a recovery coach and we offer these meetings, get them connected with people in recovery so that they don't feel alone because I know a lot of times we've lost all of our friends and family and the recovery community is all that we have until we're able to build those relationships back up and it just takes time. So being here for someone who has nothing and no one is what's most important. And with your dollars, we are able to provide those services to them. Recovery stories are definitely hard and heavy, but some of the most inspiring and hopeful stories as well that you can hear. And I know this is going to be hard for you, but can you please tell me one experience you've had at Voices of Hope that has been especially rewarding? Yes, um, our telephone recovery support is actually all volunteer um, led. So all of our volunteers make those. And we've had a volunteer who's been coming weekly um, to make those calls. He is in recovery. He is in school. He's never late. He just enjoyed it so much. And he's just been a joy to watch. And most recently, we posted for an internship for a ready, employment readiness program that we do. And he actually applied. And I would have no idea, but he has not had a job since 1998. And he is now working for us as an intern here at Voices of Hope. And he is so excited to be here and he's so excited to be able to give back. And just to see how he really took pride in what he was doing as a volunteer and never let us know that he was going through anything or struggling, you know, financially or had never had a job in so long for us to be able to provide that for him and continue him on his recovery journey. Um, he's going to be able to help a lot of people and that's just most happened most recently but it's just been awesome to watch because i've had him for a while as a volunteer so it seems like you all really just do life with people and you walk alongside people in every aspect that's when you see really transformational change so that's great yes. is there anything left unsaid you'd like to say about your organization is there anything that you wish more people knew i wish more people knew how many people are actually in recovery I know with the stigma that comes along with being a recovering 
um, alcoholic or addict um, is that sometimes we don't want to say that if we're a business owner or we're a doctor or we're someone in the community that you know works at the news or anything like that that's struggled with that um, i think it's important here recently i've really noticed more people of different varieties even nfl players um, people that are in positions like that speaking out about what they've went through and i think that that's so important because if i share my story with just a regular person it gives them hope to share with the next person and then through all of these chains the stigma of being in recovery can be erased and i just think that there's a lot of people out there through this journey especially in working with voices of hope I've, i mean i've met business owners in the community i've met doctors i have met attorneys many people who are in recovery who just don't share that because of the stigma that comes along with it so i just wish that people knew that there's a lot of people out there in recovery and we're not all the typical image that you may have in your head of what a recovering addict looks like and that's what we really wanted this show to be is a platform for people to share their stories and so hopefully someone listening will resonate with what you're saying and then do the same for someone else that's a great concept thank you so what's going on with you all in the upcoming months we're about to end 2020 what can we expect from you in the upcoming months well, we are doing a lot of outreach for the holidays. We have some um, different things going on. We're doing an angel tree for some um, people that have children who can't provide Christmas, um, different things like that. We've got some things coming up after the first of the year. It's still slow and go. Um, a lot of people aren't coming in. So we're reaching out and working on ways to get people back involved in the community. But we do have, um, they never stop coming from rehab to sober living. So, those um, backpacks that we provide with the hygiene items, we provide those out in the community as well to you know, the homeless and things like that, people that don't have anything. So that's been our biggest outreach here lately um, is providing those to people in the community um, and recovering addicts and alcoholics as well, just to give them, it's just, it's the smallest thing, it seems so silly, but it is the biggest thing when you're the one on the other end receiving it, just to know that somebody's there and care. Shout out where our listeners can find out more about you, learn more about you, how to get involved, all that stuff. Sure. We are online at voicesofhopelex.org, or you can find us on Facebook at Voices of Hope Lexington. Um, you can reach out to us. There's volunteer opportunities. You can sign up there. If you are in, in need of a telephone recovery call or recovery coach, there's also a way to sign up online. You can always reach out to us on Facebook Messenger. Um, if you don't, if you can't do that, or you're welcome to stop by here at the center, we can get you signed up here on site. We are at 450 Old Vine Street here in downtown Lexington. Great. And I was on their website earlier today and have a great website, very informational. So make sure to check them out. So Samantha, we appreciate your willingness to share and give us some insight into the wonderful work that you are doing to make our community a better place at Voices of Hope Lexington. So thank you for joining us at BGCF on the Do Good Radio Hour. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You are listening to Radio Lex, the voice of the people. Welcome back to the Do Good Radio Hour. We are thrilled to welcome our next guest, Teresa Thomas, the Executive Director of Bluegrass Council of the Blind. Welcome, Teresa. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure to be with you. Yeah, thank you for joining us today. We have a lot to discuss. I'm actually very excited. So tell me a little bit about yourself and what you do at Bluegrass Council of the Blind. Well, first, thank you for this opportunity. Um, we are extremely excited to be a part of the Good Giving Challenge for our very first time this year. Uh, I have been with the Bluegrass Council of the Blind for, I, I'm about two months shy of being here eight years. And I have been the executive director with the organization, but the organization itself has been around for over 45 years. So I am just one of many different people that work together to improve the lives for people with vision impairments in Kentucky. So our organization, uh, we are a team of people with vision impairments. I myself am legally blind, and I'm extremely happy to announce that uh, beginning December, we will have eight employees total, and six of our eight employees are people with vision impairments who are legally blind. So that we, amazing. we like to 
we like to call ourselves a, a positive spin on that old negative saying, the blind leading the blind, because that's what we are. We're, we're people that deal with vision impairments every day, working to help others to overcome the challenges that they're facing. So that's, that's kind of in a nutshell who we are and what we do. You are the embodiment of, of your mission, which I think is so fantastic. So if you could go more into your mission and how you see that manifested in your programming. Absolutely. So not only the staff, but our primary volunteers and our board of directors are people with vision impairments. I think at least 51% or more of our board must be uh, persons or individuals with vision impairments at all times. We also have a membership as an affiliate of the American Council of the Blind, and they as well require 51% uh, or more of their membership and their board of directors to be people with the vision impairments to help keep us true to our mission. And it really, really does. Um, not only does it help us stay focused on what we're supposed to be doing, but it also serves as an inspiration for many of our, our consumers that we serve because they come in and, you know, they may be new to vision loss, maybe had a recent accident or stroke, or maybe they're losing their vision because of macular degeneration or diabetes, but they many times have lived with vision all of their lives and they just really don't know how to live their life with low vision or no vision at all and it's extremely overwhelming when you think about the many different things throughout your day that you do that you use your vision people often think well i can't do that anymore and that's just not the case. And so when we work with individuals that come here looking for services and for resources, they're often, they're given hope, I think is the best way to say it. They're given hope when they see people that are working and serving others and being able to accomplish the many things that we do here with vision impairments ourselves it gives them a spark of hope that life isn't over after vision loss, that they can continue to live their lives and do the things that they want to do despite that challenge of vision impairment. Where are you all located? Are you in Lexington? Yes, we are located. Um, our offices are on South Broadway, very close to the UK campus. Our offices um, we serve people here in the office. We're not able to go into people's homes or out into the, to work with people in their own homes, but we do offer our services here. We schedule appointments and even with COVID-19, our location here, we have hundreds and hundreds of different types of devices, assistive technology that we can demonstrate. So for people with vision impairments, this is one of the only places, actually it is the only place in the state of Kentucky that individuals with vision impairments can try out visual aids and devices specifically for vision impairments to learn what is available, if it works for them, if it's something that they would actually use um, in their daily lives. And for that reason, it's important that people know that we're here and that they can schedule an appointment and find that help to try things out because there's nowhere else in the state of Kentucky that does this. Do you have any statistics on the population of the visually impaired in our region or in Kentucky? I'm just interested in that. Right here in front of me. So our what we used to call our service area, and I guess on paper it still officially is Fayette County and the surrounding counties. So that would be Anderson, Bourbon, Clark, Fayette, Jessamine, Madison, Montgomery, Scott, and Woodford counties. And no, I didn't read that. That was from memory. <laughs> there are over 11,500 adults with um, vision impairments in that area. I can tell you that last fiscal year, we served people from 76 different Kentucky counties because no one else in Kentucky does what we do and no one has the type of knowledge and staff that we have to help others. Um, it's free of charge. There's no referral required. People can just call us and say, hey, here's what I'm experiencing and 
what kinds of things can you can you help me with? So our primary programs are peer support and assistive technology and training. So we also provide a lot of opportunities for individuals to connect with other people that are facing vision impairments. Um, but it doesn't go, it goes beyond just that individual. So family members often come in with that individual and they learn right alongside them. Our services are geared towards not just helping that person, but helping their loved ones that come in with them. And sometimes it's a caregiver and it's sometimes it's even a social worker or a home health nurse that comes in wanting to figure out how they can help their, their patient or the person that they're working with to live a higher quality of life. So our, we, we kind of changed our our mission, um, our tagline now says serving people impacted by vision loss, because it's not just that individual that's impacted, the, the spouse or the adult child or the parents of an individual, um, the loved ones, they're all impacted by that vision impairment and they want to learn how to help and how to be there for that individual. And we provide support for them just as much as we do for that individual. What you would normally see before COVID, you would see um, several of us here working intently on many different projects, planning. Um, we have, we would normally have um, intake appointments two or three a day with individuals coming in and sitting down with one of our staff members, like I said, just to talk about what they're struggling with and what we might be able to recommend and provide as far as services. You would also see volunteers working, um, helping with anything from stuffing information packets for events, to vacuuming the floors, to putting together food boxes, because we do supplemental food distribution once a month we provide a few extra grocery items, usually an average of 12 to 15 pounds worth of uh, grocery items. And since COVID-19, we're also including some personal care items like hand sanitizer, cloth face coverings, um, things of that nature we're adding on. And we're also including sometimes things like paper towels and toilet paper, Clorox wipes, things that other people are still, you know, Sighted people go to the grocery and yeah, they're out of them, but you can stop by CVS on the way home and see if they have it there or stop somewhere else. Make a couple of stops to pick up everything that you need. When you're a visually impaired person and you're riding Red Cross wheels or public transportation or you're getting a ride from a neighbor, you can't stop and just hunt down those difficult to find items that you really need. So we're, we're providing those with our food distribution. So on a daily basis, depending on what day you come in, you're gonna see um, a variety of staff members working alongside volunteers. Um, our peer support program coordinator will be busy uh, working on uh, planning our support group meetings. We do a lunch and learn once a month, which provides a, a speaker that provides information about resources available in our community with um, a hot meal. We serve a hot meal. We give people the opportunity to socialize and have that social interaction. A lot of people are with vision impairments, they become very isolated. They stay home. The, the fear of falling or just the fear of not recognizing somebody because you can't make out facial features any longer. It, it becomes very stressful and causes a lot of anxiety. So people often just become isolated and stay home to avoid that anxiety. So we give people the opportunity to come here where everyone else is experiencing or, or facing or at least understands the challenges that you're facing and people can relate to others and share their experiences. There's so many elements of daily life that those of us, you know, who are not visually impaired, I take for granted. So thank you for giving me perspective with what you just told me. So lucky for you, in your organization, it is good giving season here at Bluegrass Community Foundation, and you are a lucky participant this year. And I did not know it was your first year participating, which is 
extra exciting. What a way to end this crazy year of 2020. Can you just give a little pitch of why people should give to you and Bluegrass Council of the Blind? Yes. Um, BCB is the only nonprofit exclusively serving the needs of people with vision impairments in Kentucky. Our, our office provides an access center with hundreds of devices, technology, and the staff to train people on how to use them. We not only provide the devices or the ability to try them out, we have a lending library where they can take some items home and try them out for up to three months. We also have a distribution program where people can um, if we have the devices available, we get them through grants, we're able to give them to them and let them take them home and keep them and use them in their daily lives. We're the only agency that does that in Kentucky. And the numbers are staggering, the increase in people with vision impairments. So for us, this being our first year and it being in the middle of COVID-19, um, everybody keeps talking about this year being so 2020. And, you know, I'm really hoping that it, we can use that as kind of a play on words that maybe it's going to give people a little extra 2020 vision um, to, to realize how privileged and benefit, how many benefits they have um, and not just look at the negative side of it, but kind of put things into perspective and give them some insight into not only what's really negative or difficult right now, but how we're very blessed with so many things in our lives. I know even though I'm visually impaired, I'm extremely blessed. And wow, the year 2020 has really helped me realize a me lot too. of what I do have. Me too. That is for sure. We, we would like for everyone to kind of think about the year 2020 and how it can help you have a little bit better 2020 vision, at least from the uh, aspect of what you're blessed with right. and what you do have. Definitely a perspective aspect. That's what's happened for me. That's for sure. And hopefully for, for all of us. So I know your work is incredibly fulfilling as you've already said during this interview, I've been very inspired by the work that you all do. So if you could just give me one, if possible, I know you have so <laughs> many of the most rewarding experiences during your time working with uh, BCB. Absolutely. That would be hope. Even though I'm visually impaired, I can still see the hope on people's faces when they sit down with one of our staff members, whether it be me or our peer support coordinator or assistive technology coordinator, and they start to hear about ways that people with low vision are able to cope and manage when they see the devices that can help them to be able to read their mail or to see the faces of their grandchildren by putting their pictures on a magnification device and, and enlarging it on a big screen. Their faces light up and the, the hope and inspiration in their voices when they realize, wow, I can do this. I can live with low vision and I can do a lot of the things I wanted to do that I thought were impossible. That's the biggest thing for me that that keeps me motivated and inspires me to continue doing what I'm doing because the hope that I see and I hear in their voices makes all the difference in the world to me. I love that. We all need a good dose of hope every once in a while. So <laughs> the fact that your true. organization is doing that is, is very inspiring, but it seems like you're really ending this year on a high note, which is exactly what you should do. So the very last thing that I would like for you to do for me is shout out where people can find more about you. Absolutely. We are on the internet at www.bcbky.org. You can also find us on Facebook, the Bluegrass Council of the Blind, Inc. We're on Twitter, BC Blind. Uh, we're on Instagram. Um, we're kind of all over social media. We're everywhere. People we can are. Find Pinterest, <laughs> even. I mean, you Good can thing. find us everywhere. 
Um, and you can call our offices. That's really the best way to get connected with us is to start with a phone call. We've had the same phone number for probably 30 years. It's 859-259-1834. Even though we're working from home and virtually, we're still answering calls. We have a new phone system so we can do that. And we're still here working through all of this COVID-19 and we still want to get connected. I love that. Teresa, thank you very much for taking the time to share your story and all of the wonderful work you are doing for our community and BGCF thanks you a lot. And we can't wait to see how good giving is for you and Bluegrass Council of the Blind. Thank you, Teresa. Thank you so very much. I really appreciate all that the Bluegrass Community Foundation has done for us. And we're just thrilled for this to be our first year to participate in the challenge. Thank you. Thank you. Welcome back. Bluegrass Community Foundation would like to end the show learning more about the good work at Newton's Attic and what they're doing for our community. Please welcome Don Cloyd, Director of Community Outreach. Welcome, Don. Hey, thanks for having me, Katen. Yeah, we can't wait to learn more about the ins and outs of Newton's Attic. I'm actually personally really interested in it. So, but first, tell me a little bit about you and how you got involved at Newton's Attic. So um, my husband, actually, Bill Cloyd, is a mechanical engineer and founder of Newton's Attic. And we, you know, have been married for 16 or 17 years. And I had um, my, I, I was in working in my family's company. Um, my family had a high-end loudspeaker company and I worked in international sales. I was actually a teacher by training. I taught high school Spanish and ESL to immigrants and um, then worked in the business world for about 13 years. And right around the time that my mother was selling the family company after my uh, dad had passed away, uh, Bill was deciding to expand Newton's Attic and actually get a facility. Uh, he had always worked in schools. Uh, schools would contract him to work with groups of students and teachers. Um, it was sort of, he was a pro professional engineer and sort of subsidized Newton's Attic with his professional work. So he did some really great, big, cool things, but it wasn't a full-time organization. And so um, as fate would have it, my future freed up right around the time or he was getting five acres and two buildings and trying to make a go of it as a full-time thing. Um, I don't think we ever would have intentionally put our economic eggs in one basket, um, as it were. <laughs> you know, I had a steady paycheck, um, but that's what uh, fate had in mind for us. So uh, about eight years ago, we started doing it together full-time and, you know, actually had a facility where people could come and, um, and so I became sort of, he's, a, he's very much an engineer. <laughs> so I became sort of the, the people outreach part of things. Oh, great. I feel like that's a, the way a lot of nonprofits work. It just starts with passion and it goes from there and you're like, how did I get here? But that's nonprofit work for you. So I was doing some research on Newton's Attic on your website and social media, and you have so many great and really interesting programming. So can you tell me a little bit more about the mission and how that's reflected in your programming? Sure. Um, the mission is to stimulate interest in science and engineering through exciting and unusual hands-on project-based learning. Now, lots of places say that, um, you know, and it sounds really, it sounds good on paper, sounds kind of normal on paper, um, but it's kind of anything but normal. Um, <laughs> it's very unusual. If you've seen some of the pictures, you know, we have bungee-powered roller coaster, we have a pumpkin chunker, we have a, a, a device that will fling a human being into a lake or a circus net. Um, we have a giant trebuchet. So the, the idea is, is that engineering and physics should be fun and exciting. And you can do so many wonderful things with it, both on a personal level, a career level, you know, engineers solve problems. So all of us benefit when people become engineers and the people who become engineers or scientists benefit because they are able to make the world a better place you know, they, they can make their families more prosperous, all of those things. It's sort of a win-win for everybody when people know how to solve problems and, and do stuff, right? We can fly in airplanes, we have smartphones, all, all of those things. So, um, but Bill grew up on a farm and his dad was a, an engineer and he had a lot of land and a shop that he could use. So he, he was this kid who grew up designing and building big crazy things. When he was 18 years old, he built an 80 foot, that's eight stories, tower out of television antenna that he took off of people's houses. This was in the late eighties when cable was coming in and TV antennas were going out and he went around and he took 
these big television towers off of people's homes and built this contraption that he bungee jumped from and free fell from. He, he wove his own circus net. And he, it actually made it onto KET because he was interning there at the time. So he, he grew up building all these things. And then when he went back to school, he, or when he went to college, he actually first got a degree in education and taught high school math and physics. And he, the classroom was just way too confining for him. And he decided that he needed to do something different, that you know, there just weren't enough resources, not enough space. And so he um, went back, got his engineering degree, and became a professional engineer and then started Newton's Attic sort of as the sideline. But his goal was to let kids experience what he experienced. You know, he, he noticed that there were all these kids that wanted to design and build things, but they didn't have access to space or materials or tools. The educational system was far too risk averse. Um, and even if the teachers wanted to, um, you know, there were a lot of great teachers out there, but they didn't either, they didn't have the space and resources, and maybe they didn't even have the know-how. And that's why we've also gotten into some professional development, because there are these teachers that really want to do fun, hands-on project-based learning, but they don't have, you know, maybe they're afraid to, to use the tools necessary. So um, Bill's vision was to let kids explore their curiosity, start from scratch. He felt like a lot of the engineering education out there for kids was way too prefabricated, that they were kind of assembling things. And there was a lot on the digital and technology side, you know, coding and things like that. But there really wasn't a lot on the creative process where you start with an idea or a problem and you figure out, hmm, how can I solve it? Here are some tools and here are some things I have to use and actually build something and then see if it fails or, or works. And why did it fail? And why did it work? And go through that iterative process. And, and the kids just respond so well to it. It's, it's, it's really fun to watch. So his vision was to give kids the opportunities that he had growing up on a farm with space and materials. And I love that now he's using that to in turn get kids to also have that same spirit. I really think that's great. He lived it. Now he wants to invest in kids to live that too. I think that's great. Yeah. And actually you said something really important there. Um, he doesn't just want to give the kids the spirit because some kids come in without it and they discover it, right? There's the spark, but a lot of kids have it and it gets just kind of, it gets killed. And I mean, I hate to say it, but they don't have the opportunities. They're told not to No, that's too dangerous. No, you can, or the people around them don't know how to do things. You know, the world is very different from when I was young and when he was young, when kids actually were allowed to take chances and, you know, dads and, you know, granddads and people in their lives had shops and garages where they did things and they got to kind of do a lot of uh, projects where they learned things um, that you didn't learn in school, right? And that, that kind of has gone away in recent generations. Right. So Newton's Attic, that name is very unique. Where did that come from? Isaac Newton, of course, is, you know, some people call him the father of physics, you know, Newton's right. laws. And so Bill's idea, his original plan was to have a big building that was sort of like a museum or like the Explore, um, the Explorium in, in San Francisco, where you go and there are all these big demo active, what we call a demo active device, like the bungee powered roller coaster we have, where you can ride it and you can experience acceleration and you can, you know, notice that a heavier person doesn't accelerate as quickly as a small person, you know, all these things that um, bring physics to life. So the idea was to have this whole collection of stuff that kids could ride or play with or teachers could use, bring field trips. So it was the idea was, what would Isaac Newton have in his attic? But I absolutely love your motto I saw on your website where play is the ultimate learning tool. I totally agree with that. I just wanted to know if you could tell me a little bit how you've seen that manifested in your organization and your programs. I think it's actually one of the key things. There's more, we come at it not from a highly academic standpoint, but there is loads of research to back this up. And it's not just true in humans, it's true in like all mammals, that play is incredibly important. It's how you learn to be an adult. And what you play at is what you're learning to do and to be. Um, and I think that in our highly structured society where we intervene so much and you know we settle problems for kids, we organize their baseball games, we... Um, you know, we tell them what they're going to do and when, uh, that we've kind of missed a huge part of the child brain. You know, children are, their, their brain is all set up for learning. And, you know, you have this opportunity from the time they're born until they, you know, reach some period of young adulthood where their brain is really forming. Kids need to play in order to learn. When we inhibit that, I think it's at 
both their detriment and ours um, as a society. You know, the rates of anxiety in children, depression in children, all these things are just mounting. And we're not, I don't think we're putting the connection between that kids aren't allowed to be kids and that play isn't necessarily frivolous. So what we try to do is, you know, we, you know, we're very educational and we have, you know, we, we have a plan and we're not just like letting them like, you know, run around and splash in mud puddles, um, which is also great to watch kids do that. Um, but we want them, we want the idea that they do to come from them. And we always want it to be fun, right? Because otherwise it's just like school and school should be fun, honestly. Um, so, you know, all the projects at, at Newton's Attic are individual. Um, when they, if we have Camp Catapult, they're designing and building their own catapult. It's not a group project. And then afterwards, we'll have a, like a water balloon war. You know, at the end of the week, we set up, we have these little castle walls and we will set up castle walls and they'll spend the last morning of summer camp filling up, you know, hundreds of water balloons and they'll have a water balloon war using the catapults that they built, right? So um, it's something that they can look forward to. It's, it use, you know, they're using their, their machines and they'll, they will either do better or not and they'll see how they, they failed, but it's, it incorporates play. So, so it sounds like you all have a lot of fun every day. So we do. I want to know what, what your daily operations are like. If I were to walk in today, what would I see? Yeah. So today you wouldn't see a lot. Obviously I'm working from home. Um, so it, it's radically different depending on the season and on the day. Normally this time of year, we would be hosting field trips. And when people think of field trips, they think of like going somewhere. Uh, we are the hosts. So schools come to us from all over the state. They'll bring anywhere from 30 to hundred students at a time. They'll show up on buses and we'll spend three or four hours with them. We have a, a fun engineering process presentation where Victor the candy shooting robot comes out. We we they ride the bungee powered roller coaster. They we do the pumpkin chunker. So there'll be a you know like a three to four hour thing where they're doing um, fun stuff with physics. It's more like an introduction. That typically in non COVID times is March through May and September through November. Um, you know so that's our full spring and fall five days a week every day. So usually the first half of those days we're entertaining students educating and, and education and edutainment. Um, and the second half of the day is, you know, just the other work that goes on in organization. Our summer camp season is incredibly robust. We start, you know, the day school gets out and we go till school goes back and sometimes even before Fayette County School. So we have usually 12 straight weeks of very intensive summer camp programs. They're a week at a time. Um, during a normal year, we have over 50 programs we offer. You know, then we have first through third, third through fourth, fifth, fifth through eighth, and seventh through 10th grade programs. So, but all those 50 programs don't just magically appear. You don't just turn on a faucet, you know, on May 28th. There is a lot that goes into developing them. You know, we have to, you know, you get your ideas, you have to source the materials because some of the stuff we do, you know, they require either computers or 3D printers or like microcomputers like Raspberry Pis. We do stuff with drones. So it's, there's a lot of that's what we use this time of year for. And in the winter, like in December and January and February, when the field trips aren't as intense, um, there's a lot of back infrastructure building. So we're, we're researching materials, we're coming up with new class ideas, we're trying to develop our staff, you know, because every summer we have to hire, you know, we hire professional teachers, we also hire college students. So um, daily operations is, is pretty seasonal. There are three of us who are full time right now. Um, it, we had been actually at five, but the COVID situation changed that. Um, and then we hire as many as, you know, 20 to 30 people during the summer. We also run programs like Christmas break program, fall break program, spring break program, Martin Luther King Day, President's Day, anytime school is out. So this time of year is kind of interspersed with some smaller programs, um, but our, um, it's funny, so our, we are not a fancy place. If you were to walk in today, it would just look like a big empty building and you would see, you know, my husband and, and a couple of guys working on the, the laser engraver or working on a machine and it wouldn't look like much. Um, but all of that is in service of, you know, these very robust dynamic programs that we do. And, you know, once summer starts, it's like a, it's a blur. So COVID has forced us all to pivot and be very innovative and innovation is your strong suit. So <laughs> can you give me one example of how you've had to be innovative during this time. Sure. So, um, you know, we're project-based hands-on learning. How do you do that? 
online, right? right? So what we, what we did this spring, um, we were fortunate enough to have a laser engraver donated to us and we were able to make really cool, nice looking sharp kits. So we had a catapult kit, a ski ball kit, a glider kit um, that people could mail order. Uh, they could purchase them and then we did a YouTube live stream. So really innovative. We recorded it. And so what Bill, my husband, who's a mechanical engineer, everybody could, you know, log on and he built it along with them and then had some lessons to go. So they were at their house. We sent everything. We sent glue and rubber bands and, you know, anything anybody would possibly need for the project. So the parents didn't have to go out shopping. Then we had a time and date for the YouTube live stream. People signed on and then we recorded it. So anybody who wanted to buy and do the project kits afterwards could still do it. Um, but during the live stream, you know, they could chat and ask questions and, and we are going to be doing some more of that. But right now we've decided we have a couple of really big pool donations um, that came to us in the form of a water jet. And we also are going to build a driving simulator. Um, and those are pretty intensive projects. So that's what we've decided to take this sort of downtime that we don't have field trips every day and um, use our resources toward getting. It's really hard, actually, when you have a building full of kids running around and you're trying to do, you're trying to build your infrastructure and do some projects that are actually physically very large and require maybe forklifts and some powerful tools running. You can't do that. You know, our space in the current facility we have, you can't do those things at the same time. So, you know, we have to do a lot of stuff when the kids aren't around. So now we're, we're taking advantage of right. that. That's a silver lining of this whole thing. Is right. To work on your facility. That's really great. And you have to count your silver linings right now. <laughs> So true. I do it every day. <laughs> so speaking of resources here at BGCF, it is good giving time, which is so much fun. Best time of the year. And Newton's Attic is a part of it. So we're hoping to end 2020 really strong. Give a pitch to people. Why should they give to you? Okay. So Newton's Attic is entirely privately funded. We are a 501c3. So of course your donation is tax deductible. Um, we do not seek or accept taxpayer funded money. So we think what we're doing is very cool, but we think that people ought to be able to donate and give their hard-earned money to the causes that they want to, not via some other extraction mechanism like, you know, the, the grants that are public. So um, we pride ourselves on, on being privately funded. We do have a fee for services. You know, people will pay us to send their children to us, but we, that revenue does not meet our needs for building the infrastructure that allows us to offer the programs we do. So, um, and I would say that we are very nimble. We are good stewards of the money. The way I like to think of it is that if you give a man a fish, you feed him for the day. If you teach him to fish, you feed him for life. And so what we're doing is giving students the ability to support themselves and support their communities by learning real skills. And we're also making kids happier and more confident. You know, there's all this talk about the self-esteem movement, you know, telling kids that they can be anything or do anything. And I will tell you, kids are capable of way more than we give them credit for. When they come in um, and they realize that they're going to get to use tools and build things, you see true self-esteem because they actually gain confidence. And that's what makes a kid turn into a good adult. The other thing I like to remind people of is we're not raising children. We're raising adults. Okay, so we need to make sure that we're giving these kids everything that they need to be the people that we want them to be in the future. I mean, these are our future, you know, pilots and mechanics and, and you know, the people who are building our, our, our airplanes and our automobiles and all the things that keep us and our hospitals and our robots, right, <laughs> that keep us alive and safe. So we're, we're not just empowering the kids themselves to have a brighter future, we're, we're taking care of society and really honestly the whole world i love that quote about the fishing i'll have to put that in my in my arsenal to use that's that's a great analogy of what you all do what has been one of the most rewarding experiences for you working at newton's attic twofold when i already kind of mentioned i love to see the change in the kids as they come in um that that being kind of nervous and tentative to just like super confident and excited and like I, I, this is kind of funny, but I love it when their parents show up to pick them up. They're like, no, mom, I'm not ready yet. That's a good sign. <laughs> That's a good sign. I love that. And then the other, the flip side of that is I've had mothers actually cry just telling me how much it meant to their kid. I said that there's a lot of stuff out there for kids who love sports or who love theater or who love whatever, but there's nothing like this 
for them and this is what he needs and that that actually changed the kid's life they felt like it saved their life because they were you know they didn't realize that they had that skill or a talent that they were good at something that they belonged somewhere and um just knowing how intense that is for a parent to realize that they their kid has a gift and we allowed them to find it that's very powerful is there anything that you wish more people knew about Newton's Attic that they might not find on your website, on your social media, just an insight into, into the operations? Sure. Um, I wish more people knew the, the level of things that we did. There are lots of places that do STEM education, you know, like with coding or Lego robotics. Um, but I wish more people knew how that we're actually letting kids use tools that are professional quality you know, not only in fabrication like metal and woodworking, but also in like the Fusion 360 and, you know, the software programs that these kids are doing and exposed to things that are really unusual. Like when, when people see this stuff in process, they're like, wow, I had no idea. And we've had families that have been with us that have moved all over the country and they can't find anything like this, not in New York, not in California. So we had a family travel from California to do a program. They just put us on their vacation map because they couldn't find what we did anywhere. So that would be one thing I wish people knew that, yeah, there's a lot of unusual stuff. And I guess the second thing is, is that we would, we'd also do custom stuff. Like if you have a group, a Girl Scout group, a Boy Scout group, a, um, you know, a school group, we do very sophisticated in-depth engineering programs that we can custom design for you. So um, I guess that would be the other thing I'd want people to know, in addition to the wide variety of programs that we offer when school is out. So tell the people listening how they can get more involved, where they can find more about you, all the things, shout it out. Sure. Okay. So newtonsattic.org and that's Newton, like Isaac Newton, no apostrophe though, N-E-W-T-O-N-S-A-T-T-I-C, like up in the attic.org. And um, we are actually just by the airport. If you want to come, my name is Dawn and you can call us if you want to tour, if you want to learn more, uh, 368 seven three three four three six eight seven three three four four or you can look it on the website you can message me i would love to um show you around you can also plan private events like if, if your group wants to have you know a party or an event and it's not just for kids adults come too because we do really fun interesting things um we would love to to host your your company your organization uh that could be something you could plan something fun for people there we are 15 minutes from downtown seven minutes from Beaumont. We're not, people think that we're far out, but we're not very far out. Don, thank you so much for investing in our community and our kids and just making Lexington a better place. Here at Bluegrass Community Foundation, we thank you very much. Thanks for all you do. We really appreciate that this is an important thing for us and we value everything that you guys do. Thank you. All right, everyone, that is it. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you were encouraged by the stories of good happening right here in our community. I definitely know that I am. Make sure you tune in next Monday at 2 p.m. for more good stories and the next installment of the Do Good Radio Hour.